Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you, in your infinite wisdom and sovereignty, chose to cause uh, these authors over a period of 1,500 years, these some 40 authors, to write down under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit these words that would benefit us and be examples to us today. We're grateful, particularly in this hour, for the book of Ezra and what you, what you have put into that book and what we can see in it. And I pray that as we open up these pages, that our minds would be open, our ears would be open, our eyes would see what it is your Holy Spirit wants us to see, and that you would speak loudly to each one of us. And I pray that you would enable me to speak the words that were pleasing in your sight, to have me say the words that you want me to say. We thank you, and we pray in the name of Jesus, everyone said, Amen. Where do we start? That's the title, by the way. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you see. And, you know, it's, this is the book of Ezra, part one. You say, well, you talked about it last week. Well, officially, last week was the introduction. And so today's actually part one. In a little bit, I'm going to have you turn to, to uh, Ezra chapter three. Um, I started preparing this message and started going through my notes and making notes and and putting together an outline and 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 trying to you know just structure this thing and I started I had I had some parameters and some things written down and um, and uh, you know there's an episode of the Andy Griffith show <laughs> where Ben Weaver's giving away free stuff and Opie can't comes in and he's giving he tells his pa that he's giving away really valuable stuff like gum and balloons. And Opie starts sticking a stick of gum in his mouth and chews it. And then before he gets that one chewed five times, he sticks another stick in. He's just doing it. And before long, he's got his mouth is so full of chewing gum. When he talks, his paw can't even understand what he's saying. And this message became like that. The more I chewed on it, the bigger it got. <laughs> and at some point I said, whoa, Nelly, to quote a great sportscaster, Keith Jackson, uh, you're going to have to back this off a little bit. And so uh, we're actually only going to cover three verses today. <laughs> so you say, well, okay, we're going to spend to the millennium in the book of Ezra at that rate. But where do we start? Part one. Chapter one, in the introduction, we, we read where the Lord stirred up Cyrus. And I just can't get over the uh, unusual nature of that sentence, that the Lord stirred up Cyrus, king of Persia. And, and had him basically say to the children who were in captivity, whosoever, that word comes up sometimes, whosoever may go to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And not only that, he brought out the vessels of worship that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And, of course, all of that's listed in chapter 1. And then chapter two, we, of course, we had someone else read that last week. And if we was going to read it today, we'd also have someone else read it again. But chapter two, we see the listing of the exiles, knowing that later on there'll be another group, but this is the initial group of 50,000, approximately 50,000 exiles. We saw the listing and we had, we had that read where we saw every name and we saw the total of each family. And we said then, just like we say now, just like we always say, the reason for that is God's, God's interest is in people. Not structures. Structures are helpful. Not organizations. Organizations sometimes are necessary. But God, His primary goal, His primary interest is people. And we see that not only in Ezra 2, but we also see that in all the genealogies in the Bible that nobody ever wants to read. People, people, people. This is about people. Even though they're rebuilding the temple, it's still about people. And so we move into chapter 3 uh, and begin to see the, the stirring around. We've got the establishment of them being released by King Cyrus and the, and the listing of the 50,000, so to speak. 
And so then we move into chapter 3. I'm going to read seven verses, but as I said earlier, we're only going to cover three of them. Uh, and I hope I can get you out of here by, by 1230, okay? <laughs> yeah, okay. If you would stand while we read the Scripture, uh, I'm going to be reading once again from the English Standard Version. And um, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, or Joshua, some of your Bibles will say, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, or tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. You may be seated. It, it was St. Augustine who is credited with the statement, the new is concealed in the old, and the old is revealed in the new. And he was particularly talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I have said it sometimes uh, that the New Te- the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Probably a better word there is veiled. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Uh, and the point being that you don't ever separate the two. We don't say the Old Testament, that's old, that's old, and it's just no good. It doesn't apply anymore. It applies as much or more as it ever did. And if you read, if you read uh, the Gospels, and I know people that say, well, I only read red, red letters. Well, for one thing, you're missing out on a lot of the Word of God. Ern Baxter used to, the late Ern Baxter used to get fired up when people would say the red letters was the Word of Jesus, and he said the whole Bible is the words of Jesus. But when you read the red letters in your Bible, the majority of what you will read will be the Old Testament. But Jesus quoted it almost nonstop because it's the Word of God. The Old Testament is the New Testament veiled, I'll say. And so I said that because we will see, at least through large portions of this book, we will see the parallels between what was happening in their day and, and what, what happens with us. Today is no exception. Uh, as this group is, is released from captivity and allowed to come back to Jerusalem, um, the first thing on their mind is to establish the foundation. Anytime you're building a building, anytime you're building a structure, your main concern is the foundation. You would think that their immediate concern was the physical foundation of the temple, to rebuild that and to get it firm and sure. And that was certainly uh, of concern to them. But we see that the foundation that they are establishing to begin with is not the foundation of the temple, and I'll probably say this repeatedly today, but it's the foundation of worship. Now, let me hasten to add, if you haven't seen my midweek video from this past week, you should watch it. Howard let me use his shirt in that video. But, and I'm, so I'm not going to cover what I covered in that, you know, 35, 50 minute video. Actually, it's only 10. But the bottom line is that worship, and I've said this so many times recently, you're probably getting tired of hearing it, but worship far exceeds what we've done this morning with songs. Worship exceeds 
what we think of as worship. We think worship, okay, let's get together, sing some songs, raise our hands. Worship includes the offering. Worship includes communion. Worship is our life for him. And so when we talk about worship, it includes all of that. Now, I don't think you can have worship, true worship, without at some point gathering and singing some songs. But if that's all we see is worship, then we're missing out. We don't really understand worship. We just understand singing. Some churches call their leader the song leader, and sometimes that's all they are. We call our leaders worship leaders because they understand, and you you understand, they do a great job of it. They understand their role is not just to sing songs, but to lead us to a place that we worship him. Okay, I'm beating that dead horse. So they're establishing this foundation, and they're going. The issue is to begin at the beginning. I don't know who had the meeting. I don't know who made the suggestion, but uh, Jeshua and uh, Shield, uh, Zerubbabel they begin. So here's what we need to do: we need to build the altar. We need to set everything that we do on a firm foundation. And of course, as they address this issue, they realize there was another foundation that needed to be restored, and that was the foundation of the worship of God. The priority was to reestablish the regular worship of God. Last week we talked about the rhythms of worship. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with rhythms of worship. And we'll see that next week. I thought I'd get to it this week. But we'll see next week the rhythms of worship that we that we can see parallels in our own life. I'm not anyway, I've started to go negative, I'm gonna leave it alone. So before the physical foundation was built, they addressed the rhythms of worship that they had been missing. For decades, for decades, this group of people, the corporate life and worship of God's people had been nothing but a memory. While they were in captivity, there was no corporate life of worship. Now, there were individuals like Daniel who continued to worship God. And when he opened the window and bowed toward Jerusalem, there were things like that to happen. But the corporate life of the children of Israel did not exist. It was nothing to them except a memory. And so before the first piece of material was handled, first piece of building material, the daily disciplines of worship, had to be reestablished. In my practical mind, in my building mind, I would have grabbed a board and said, here, we're going we're gonna to just dig here and put, it, put a foundation in. But these guys had the foresight, foresight, forethought, foresight. You can put those two together however you want. <laughs> to say, we need to take care of this first. Establish this foundation. Establish this priority because we have for 60 or 70 years, depending on what group you were in, we have missed the corporate life of worshiping God. Once again, reminding ourselves that the word worship comes from an old English word, worthship, attributing worthship to God. He is worth, worthy of our praise and worship. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of us presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable worship. He's worthy. And they understood that. And so now they're getting together. Verse 1 begins with this statement. They were assembled. Well, I take it back. Let me put one more thing in here. They understood and they made clear repeatedly that everything must remain in accordance with the scripture. This is a theme that continues throughout this book, especially when Ezra actually arrives on the scene around chapter seven. But they, even in the very first three verses of this, of chapter three, we see that they almost demanded that whatever they're doing would be in accordance with the scripture. We see this in verse two, as it is written, everybody say written. written. What did Jesus say to the devil? It is written, Matthew 4, taking notes. As it is written 
in the law of Moses, the man of God, as it is written in the scripture. And their, their intention was whatever they would address, whatever they would put their hands to, would be somewhere within the parameters of as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so, as I started to say, uh, the very first verse, it says they were assembled as one man. This is obviously not a gender-specific term because the Christian Standard Bible, which is a very good version, by the way, says it this way, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. The issue was not gender. The issue was unity. They gathered as one. They didn't gather as individuals. There's nothing wrong. We'll get to that. Nothing wrong being individuals. But they gathered together corporately. And let me just say that Sometimes today, groups of people try to denigrate. I start to say poo-poo, but you can't say that in church. <laughs> groups of people denigrate the idea of getting together on a regular basis and having corporate worship, all facets of worship. But they didn't have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, they had missed that while they were in captivity. They gathered as one. We see that God had scattered his people in judgment. We talked about that last Sunday. You can go back and watch or listen however you choose. God has scattered his people in judgment and sent them into the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. But what we see here, that he is now gathering them in mercy. Scattered them in judgment, gathering them in mercy. And I said, I probably said it last week. You say, well, you keep saying things over and over again. I'm hoping you'll get it. Amen. I heard of a guy in Argentina one time preached a message on discipleship. Names of Juan Carlos Ortiz. He preached a message on discipleship. The next Sunday, he preached a message on discipleship. The next Sunday, he preached a message on discipleship. One of the deacons came up to him and said, Brother Juan, uh, you've been preaching that same message every Sunday. When are you going to stop? He said, when you start doing it. Amen. Oh, me. Where was I? He is gathering them in mercy. Oh, I know what I was going to say. In almost every Old Testament book, and especially some of the minor prophets, you can read God's judgment. God, I'm done with you. I'm done with you, Israel. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. It always ends with, but I forgive you, and I brought you back. It always ends that way. Just read it and prove me wrong. Well, don't prove me wrong. Just read it. It's okay with me. He's gathering them in mercy. Last week we talked about Ezra 9.13. We will get there uh, in 2026. <laughs> Teaches us the Lord is faithful to his promises and his mercy exceeds his anger. Amen. We just sang it. It's greater than our sin. His mercy. mercy everybody say mercy. mercy. His mercy exceeds his anger. God does get angry. God should get angry. As a matter of fact, if any of us were God, we'd get angry a lot more often. I tell my wife often, I'm glad that neither one of us are God. And so are you. Now, the importance of individuals was emphasized in chapter 2. We've covered that already. I mean, there was... There's a reason. There's 70. Everybody say 70. 70, 70 verses in chapter 2 listing the exiles and their families. Individuals are important. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, now the emphasis is on the importance of the corporate unit or the importance of community. Truth is, you can't have community unless you have individuals. And you need to emphasize both. So the Spirit of God is at work, as we see in the Scripture here, and preparing God's people to build for God, preparing them to build. How is he preparing them to build? Well, well, that's easy. He puts a hammer and a nail and a board in their hand. No. I mean, that's part of it. Obviously, you've got to get to that. You can't just sit over to the side and say, boy, I hope those things come together by themselves. It doesn't happen that way. 
But before you get to that place, the Holy Spirit's at work in their hearts. Let me just insert this in here. Sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit is absent in the Old Testament. Well, you hadn't read it. Because the Holy Spirit is extremely active in people's lives in the Old Testament. Now, the people in the Old Testament did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have. But the influence and the work of the Holy Spirit was there. Oh, my goodness. How did creation happen? Okay. I rest your case. Okay. So here we come to the crux of what they decided to do. And, and this gets us into verse 2. <laughs> Build the altar. Build the altar. In Genesis 12, 7, we're not turning. We see where Abram, who was Abram at the time, had set up an altar when he arrived in this very same land. He arrived in this land. He set up an altar. And he did that to show his trust in God's promises. He did that to worship God. God had said to Abram, to your offspring, your descendants, I will give this land. To your offspring, I will give this land. And so he set up the altar. Now they, when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar attacked and raided Jerusalem and carried the exiles into captivity, he destroyed, he destroyed the temple and he destroyed Jerusalem and he destroyed the altar. And so they uh, proceeded to rebuild or build the altar like it had been. And it's indicated that they put the altar in the exact place as the previous one. We don't know how much of it was still there, but look at verse, with my glasses I can tell you. Let's see. Verse 3, it says, They set the altar, watch these three words, in its place. Indicating there was a place, it had a place, and they already knew what that place was. Most, if not all, Bible scholars that I read are convinced that they sat that new altar in the, on the same foundation as the old altar. It's important. Maybe they did that to signify that their faith, their trust in God, had not been redirected while they were in captivity. Maybe they were saying to God with their actions, we still have, our faith has survived captivity. Our trust in you has survived captivity. And we're going to demonstrate by taking the place of, that is most uh, sacred to us. And we're going to set, we're going to build a new one on the exact spot where the old one was. The altar. And of course it says they built the altar to sacrifice burnt offerings. To sacrifice burnt offerings. Now, we don't sacrifice burnt offerings today, but we'll get to that. Sacrifice burnt offerings, and the reason for that was for the purpose of atonement. Atonement. They needed something or someone to atone for their sins. This act of atonement, this act of the burning of of offerings on the altar was to signify the removal of sin so that God's anger was turned away. Removal of sin so that God's anger is turned away. I'll, I'll probably touch on this in a minute, but in my early days of ministry, I think I probably said once or 50 times, I don't know, that God took out his eraser and erased our sins. Well, there, there is some truth to that, but that's not what happened. He didn't just erase our sins. He, he was satisfied. All right, let me, do, let me work my way to that. 
Back to the quote of St. Augustine that the new, uh, the old is revealed in the new and the new is concealed. Anyway, this act of the burnt offering, this act of sacrifice on the altar points to the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. They had a temporary sacrifice. We had a once for all, we have a once for all sacrifice. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 3. We're coming back to Ezra, but Romans 3, which brings up a topic I haven't said anything about in a very long time. Please bring something that resembles a Bible to church. Please. Somebody, a guy asked me, he, said, he doesn't go to church here anymore. He asked me one day, he said, why do you always want us to have a Bible? I said, I think, I think something happens when you look at the words. If you just stand there staring at me, you're not getting it. I, I didn't notice anybody today, so don't think I'm talking about you. If you think I'm talking about you, then that's the Holy Spirit conviction because I didn't see you. I don't care if it's a phone or a tablet. Or, or a, a real Bible, God forbid, or anything, but bring a Bible to church. What a novel idea. I mean, the football coach showed up yesterday with a Bible to the podium after he won the football game and he read a verse basically saying God gets all the glory for the victory. Of course, they're going to cut him off of whatever X is. That's another, anyway. Romans 3. And you know what should happen next is that I should turn to Romans 3. (laughs) I want you to see this. I don't want you to just hear me reading it. Verse 21. But now the righteous, this is so good. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You see, in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God could only be manifested through the law. But now it's manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So they haven't gone away. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how it's manifested today. Through you and me and all God's children. That's children for those of you from the north. (laughs) For there is no distinction for... All have sinned. Everybody say all. All All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and, and, and do not complete the race. For all have sinned and do not reach or attain to the level that is required to remove our sin. The reason you fall short of that level is because you do not have the ability within you to reach that level. Here's one thing in, in uh, evangelical circles, and especially when, this, when we were in the Southern Baptist Church, how many of you know what the Roman road is? Uh, not very many Baptists here today. Okay. This is part of the Roman road for all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Great verse. Read the next one. <laughs> and are justified. See, it doesn't end in verse 23. It doesn't end that all are sinned and fallen short of the glory of, of God. It goes on to say, and are justified by his grace as a gift. You know, I got a license to preach, so just leave me alone. <laughs> Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, all have sinned. Yes, all fall short of the glory of God. But because of Christ, we're all justified. Yeah. And my father-in-law used to like to say, just as if I'd never sinned. Which is, anyway, verse 25, he talks about Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I can't spend time there. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Burnt offering on the altar. Jesus, our propitiation. 
At the heart of true worship is gratitude for Jesus' atonement. That's the heart of true worship. You've heard people say, and maybe you have said sometimes, well, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. I tithe. I come to church. I try to treat people right. I teach in Sunday school. I serve at the rescue mission. I do all this stuff, and stuff still happens to me. (laughs) Nothing works out the way I think it should. You've heard people say that, and maybe you've said it. And, and, And probably all of us have thought it at times. What does God expect out of me? And and this thought, I know this thought has occurred. I doubt very few people have said it, but this thought has run through the minds of the people who take that attitude. What's the use of having a God if he can't fix all my messes? What's the use of having a God if I'm still going to have to go through all that stuff? Well, I'm not going to go down that road except to say this. Here's, here's what's the use of having a God. Propitiation means the appeasement of divine wrath by a sacrificial offering. Appeasement. God is a just God. God is a righteous God. God cannot, will not entertain sin. He will not entertain sinful creatures in his presence. God has to. It's not that he wants to. God has to pronounce wrath on sin because he's a just God. This is why Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature objects of wrath. Some think in today's modern theology, some think that a loving God, you know something's coming when somebody says, well, now a loving God, and you know what's going to follow is something like, well, we'll wink at everything I do and doesn't care what I do. And, you know, a loving God would never exercise wrath against his creatures. As a matter of fact, in If you were here for one of the studies we did, you heard some people say that the idea that God would pronounce the wrath of humanity on Jesus Christ was child abuse. Theologians are saying this, not lost people, not pagans. Theologians, Bible teachers are saying that when we teach that Jesus bore the wrath of humanity and that God punished him and killed him on our behalf. That is child abuse on the, on the behalf of God the Father. And of course, what they're trying to say is that's not what happened. Some say that it's really just a wiping away, which is what I referenced earlier. But it's not the, just the wiping away of sin. It's the uh, satisfaction or appeasement of God's wrath. Expiation is the word. But it's somehow the wrath of God requires satisfaction, requires appeasement. Not that he's a big old bully and not that he's a spoiled child, but that he's a just God. And the idea of the wrath of God is clearly implied. And communicated in this word, propitiation. What did we say it was? The appeasement and satisfaction of the wrath of God. If there was no need, if there was no wrath of God, there would be no need for appeasement and satisfaction of that wrath. Now, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, because I hope you're going to run to the communion table today. Because this is good news. I'm not done. My phone thinks I am, but I'm going to turn it off. There you go. Well, you're in trouble now. If Christ did not bear the wrath of God that we deserved, 
then that wrath is still stored up for us. <laughs> David said, I was conceived in sin. You were born in sin. You were born a sinner. Now, I'm not trying to make you mad. If I make you mad, then that's your problem. <laughs> Romans says this, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, watch this line, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Amen. In the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Without repenting, without receiving Christ, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. It's got to go somewhere, saints. Because, again, God doesn't, God's wrath is not because he wants to, it's because he's just. He's a righteous God. He cannot entertain sin. There must be the wrath of God. And so God, in his infinite Sovereign wisdom provided a way. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved by him from the wrath of God. If you have a New King James Bible, in verse 25, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. In the margin, you will see the note mercy seat. If you look up that word, it's exactly what that word is. The only other time in the New Testament it's used is to refer to the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the lid of gold on the Ark of the Covenant. And this, the mercy seat was the place of atonement. But it's interesting that Paul uses this word when he says, of Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a mercy seat. God set Jesus forth as our mercy seat, our place of atonement, our propitiation for us. The word there again in Romans 3, and I think Hebrews, in the Greek culture, remember this is a Greek word, in the Greek culture it meant this, appeasing and placating and offended God. Even in the pagan Greek culture they understood that. Christ's death averted the wrath of God from the sinner. Now we're getting into the good news. Christ absorbed the wrath of God. There was a, a writ of condemnation against you with your name on it. And that writ, according to Colossians, was nailed, everybody say nailed, Amen. to the cross. I've told you before that in that day when someone was executed, they would take uh, their their uh, conviction, the written form of their conviction, and they would nail it to the cross. So when you walked by, oh, yeah, that's a thief. Oh, that's a murderer. Oh, yeah, they're here for... You could see what they were being crucified for. And when you walked by the cross of Jesus, I saw your name. Because he was not guilty of anything. So your name and my name and all the names of the redeemed, the writ of condemnation that was written against you was canceled. Everybody say canceled. Canceled because Jesus absorbed the wrath that was ours. He absorbed it. We, we don't have to worry about God's wrath anymore. Now, he's going to get angry at you, and he's going to punish you. He's going to straighten you behind out. And usually when he does that, he does the rest of you too. But no wrath. Our 
quote-unquote building for God. Now, that covers everything, not just a building, physical building, but whatever you're doing for God, whatever you're going to do for God. Our building for God needs to begin here at the altar and to recognize that it is only by God's mercy and grace that we're invited into God's presence. They knew that. When they came back from captivity, they knew that the altar, it had to start where, at the altar. Where do, we be, where do we start? At the altar. Got to start here. Don't get, Leave the tube of twelves over there. We got to start here. At the altar of atonement and propitiation. And we've got to sacrifice to God. And yet we learn in Hebrews that the Old Covenant and the exercises of the Old Covenant was a shadow of what was to come. And what was a shadow in the Old Covenant was now a reality hanging on the cross once for all. Propitiation, atonement, no more wrath. I'm not going to cover this this week. I'm going to cover it next week. But the Feast of the Tabernacles is the very next thing that happens. And the Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people of their desert wanderings and their deliverance from Egypt. When you worship God in any form, you are you do that born out of your being reminded of your own wanderings and your own deliverance from Egypt. And today, as you come to the Lord's table, I pray that you come being reminded of your own wanderings and your own deliverance from Egypt and that the wrath of God has been averted and it no longer no longer do we pay that debt because it's been paid. Amen? Amen. Come, receive your elements for communion, and uh, James will lead us together.
All right. <clears throat> well, I was thinking it's an election year. Didn't know if y'all knew that already. So brings us hope, right? If we elect the right people, everything's going to be all right. No, not really. <clears throat> not really. Well, I got to thinking and I'm not what you call a history buff, but I'm, you know, history interests me. I didn't do great in it in school, uh, but I've known some friends who are very much into history. I think of Rob Shearer. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Guys like that. Um, you can get them going and just go on and on about, you know, different history events. So, uh, you're not getting an expert, uh, viewpoint here this morning, but I just wanted to share a few things in history that have kind of, that kind of jumped out at me. Um, you know, one, uh, was, you know, past, this past December, December 7th, we, we remembered Pearl Harbor Day. In, in 1940, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands were all occupied. We're all occupied. And then, of course, December 19, uh, December 7th, 1941, what happened? The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and then thereafter, the U.S. Congress declared war, and the United States joined World War II. <clears throat> Jumping back a little bit further, you had uh, October 24th, 1929, there was a great crash of the stock market that resulted in what we call now the Great Depression, which lasted about 10 years, right? Some very hard times. Uh, there, there's been natural disasters. There's some that uh, we know of in our own country, obviously. But I was like, well, what's the biggest natural disaster that there's been? In China in 1931, the Yangtze River flooded, and over 3.7 million, it's estimated, were killed in that. Um, crazy. Um, I think the one that really, really blew me away was, I'm sure you've heard of the Black Plague, the Black Death. <clears throat> in between 1346 and 1353, uh, it was the most fatal pandemic in, in history. Uh, it's estimated about 75 to 200 million people died uh, in Europe. Uh, that was about 30 to 60% of the population of Europe. It's estimated about 30, 33% of the population of the Middle East, um, people died during that, during that pandemic. Isn't that crazy? And of course, most recently we had COVID, <laughs> um, which affected the whole world here, right? Affected, I think, every life in here. There's other ones. I won't go into great detail here. Uh, 9-11. We all remember that. If you go back further, you probably remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, you know, going to a different crisis. 1973, we had Roe v. Wade, which made abortion legal in our country. Their history is fraught with um, trials, tribulations, natural disasters, man-made disasters, hard times, <laughs> hard times throughout history, right? Psalm 20 says, Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. <clears throat> and John sixteen thirty three is recorded where Jesus said, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Amen. You know, I... The election, yes, we should vote, but our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. History is fraught with, again, all these things, right? And the future, we're going to have more of that stuff, but God still reigns supreme. Peter is talking to the council. He's sharing the gospel with them. It's recorded in Acts 4. says, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our hope is in Jesus. I know you know this, but he said to remember, like Larry says, we leak, we forget. Lord, we come before you this morning and we thank you for all of your blessings, Lord. May we not um, dwell on the negative things in our life, Lord. You said in this world we'd have trouble, but you have indeed overcome, God. Lord, and we thank you that you overcome, that you have overcome, Lord. Father, on the cross, you sent your son Jesus, and he was crucified. His body was broken and his blood was poured out for us, Lord. No greater love. No greater love. And we remember that this morning, Lord, and we give you thanks, Lord. We give you thanks for the victory of the cross and the resurrection. We give you thanks, and we remember this morning. As he was, as Jesus was sitting in the upper room with his disciples, he passed the bread, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. And he passed the cup, knowing his, knowing his blood was going to be poured out. And he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Go in peace. Be safe. Oh, one moment. One more little bit of history. I was reminded sitting there, um, it was two years ago today that the first lady and Adam came and got me from the hospital after a two-week stay. And so... Uh, again, I did this two years ago, but I wanted to thank everybody for praying. Um, there were hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people that somehow contacted us. And obviously the majority of them we don't even know. And so I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, I think my family's grateful. I want to thank Aaron Beth for being my personal attendant during that time. She would, uh, she put on her scrubs and sneak into my room. <laughs> I was on the COVID floor, but, uh, wouldn't have made it without you guys. Wouldn't have made it without all of you guys at home and other places around the country praying and supporting. I pray that since that time that, uh, God sparing my life has not been a futility. And I pray that it continues to be so until Till I'm done. And when I'm done, I'm gone, folks. <laughs> but until then, I'm still here. But anyway, thank you once again. God bless you.